So what we're doing here is having a look at some recent research that's been looking at how the knowledge economy is changing and kind of what the process is and what organisations are doing in order to respond to this change and how it's changing things within within organisations. Uh, this public... Uh, there's a couple of papers that this is based on. All the references are in here, and um, also in the the handouts for the for the thing, so you'll be able to see those. Let's just have a quick look at what we're talking about here in terms of what the knowledge economy is. Just very briefly, it just refers to where knowledge and information have become the main drivers of growth, productivity, and competitiveness within an economy. And that's kind of the research definition of a, a knowledge economy. And it has quite a lot of impact. It, it sounds like it's just something that, you know, happens in certain countries. But what we find is that once the politicians get the idea that we're in a knowledge economy, the kinds of resources that then become available for different industries and things starts to shift around quite significantly. Um, and the basic premise here is that knowledge gives economic power both to the country and the organisations that are within the country and the kinds of businesses that are, are proliferating within those economies. So before we go off and have a look at what the research is saying, I, I, I want us to think about some things here. I want us to think across a couple of eras from the kind of 1960s through the 1980s through the 2000s and now into the 20s, 2020s, 2023. And I've got I've prepared a, a series of questions that are worth looking at, I think. We'll just quickly go through them. And then what I'm going to do is I'll, I'll split you up into um, some groups for 10 minutes, just have a quick chat through these. They're kind of starters for 10 if you want, but they actually lead to some interesting places, I think. Uh, the first question is, what kinds of knowledge gives you power and economic advantage within each of these areas? And what you'll find is that I think there's a shift as we go through those eras. What knowledge had status in those eras? And what about now? What knowledge has status now? What was the expertise in in these areas? So if you thought about an expert, what were they like? thinking about from those those perspectives and what knowledge has power and who controls that knowledge in each of these eras i think you'll find that that changes as well and then how would you encapsulate or think about the thinking that's been done in those eras around things like production business knowledge organizations and then the last question which is what does wisdom look like from each of those eras? And does it change? And what was wise then and what is considered to be wise now? Um, and we'll talk about why that question in a, in a moment or two. So let me just put you into some, oops. And keep moving where the breakout rooms are. Let's see how this works. Oh, beautiful three people in each group. It's great. Um, completely at random, 
enjoy uh 10 minutes uh, as i say they're just a start of a 10 but it's really to kind of get us into this idea about and i'll i'll put the the slides into those into the room so you can see them uh to really start thinking about how this has shifted over the over the time right have fun well we had an interesting conversation well we, we went all over the place um but uh had I was attention captured by the the last question, the difference between knowledge and wisdom, um, and I think we've come across many. Okay, I'll declare my hand. I was, we're talking about perhaps the big four, having lots of knowledge but not necessarily lots of wisdom when it comes to what do you do with it in in very specific contexts. So, um, you know, content for and we, that that also got us into. Um, um you know, sense making and um um that the real value of the value of the information um is, is can be more important than itself um we also talked about networks and how that's changed in the 1960s it was very much you needed to know who to go to who had whatever knowledge it is these days it's much more accessible either through intranets or internets um and and then so the searching ability Rather than the networking ability has has kind of come to play. Um, Mark, anything I forgot? That's pretty good, Mark. I think you got uh, most of things that we covered there. I think we were talking about how some people are very good at um, synthesizing knowledge and making knowledge very practical and understandable uh, to be able to pitch at all different levels. I mean, Paul, you were mostly sort of referring to that yeah so it comes back it's not just having the knowledge it's it's an understanding that you have the knowledge that's also become key you meet a lot of people who kind of have the knowledge but don't know how to use it or don't even know they've got it yes mm. yeah definitely and certainly one of the things that we're seeing and and you'll see in, in a little while that one of the things that's happened in terms of knowledge management knowledge who has the knowledge and who has the power has changed significantly, particularly as AIs kind of really kind of exploded on the scene last last year, is the increasing democratization of knowledge, that more and more people have access to more and more, and that a lot of organizations had hadn't realized that a lot of their documents were accessible to things like chat gpt and they're finding them turning up in places that they didn't think was going to happen so as you'll see one of the things that's kind of cropping up with all of this is so how do we hide knowledge particularly if it's critical knowledge for an organization so that's becoming key as well yeah nice thanks other thoughts Um, I can say a little bit, um, and it's always a thing you talk about what you remember yourself saying. So <laughs> one of the things that that I thought about in terms of the different eras is how the notion of what knowledge is important to have went from very uh, tangible material things, knowledge of production, of flows, of, of these kind of things, to knowledge of networks, and as somebody mentioned, who has the knowledge, to this notion of an experience economy or an attention economy, and 
how what is not role does knowledge play in those kind of economies and how does um the recent pandemic and people's ability to kind of rely more on their ability to access knowledge themselves and do it themselves compared to people who are actually trying to provide that and if you didn't make the grade you're often out of business hmm. yeah there's been a significant shift in that and and there was a really interesting study done it was early this year but fairly recently actually showing that what ai is doing with lower ability employees is that it's pushing them up to the same or a similar level as high ability in terms of production and ability to be able to produce things faster and and, and of a high quality so it's leveling that play playing fields what it's not talking about though is then what happens with those because it's as again we'll, we'll start exploring the whole idea about you know wisdom critical thinking those kinds of ability to be able to work out what you've actually got and what you can do with it as opposed to kind of copying and pasting things which is kind of a little bit different well it turns out Teresa and i both or she knows him more but this donald clark was talking about the job of educators in higher education is no longer to teach information or knowledge even is to facilitate this creative process of what to do with those things. And yeah. that requires a role definition, new skills, all the things that higher education is not good at changing. Yes, yeah, and, and critical thinking, including consequential thinking. So you know, what are the consequences of this? And can we predict that? Can we work out where this is going and what it's likely to be doing as well? Yeah, you're right. Exactly. Anything else? Any other comments? about any of this stuff. Marcellus. It was really just building on the point that you just raised or was just raised by Jonathan when we look at educators, which, you know, I have people in my family that are educators. And we had a discussion about the fact that the original education was from the word educe, which means to draw out. So it was that people had knowledge rather than us stuffing knowledge into their head. But then in the conversation with Marlies, um, it was really looking at the fact of now with the information democratized, as you said, David, it's like people can actually challenge. So back in the old days when it was one guy with one copy of um, the scripture and it said something, he could say, God said, you're supposed to give me money. Otherwise, you can't go to heaven. And nobody could challenge it because nobody had it. But when the printing press, as in almost like as revolution is AI, let me not make direct comparisons, but it made it that people could read it themselves and interpret themselves. So now going back to Jonathan's point on the educators now, it is how do you apply these, the consequential thinking, and then almost the need of the need of teaching people philosophy, logical yeah. thinking, consequential thinking, et cetera. Because my father was a, a professor of um, philosophy, and he was saying like in the 80s where all those programs disappeared, that's what basically – set the stage for all those Enrons and all those things because people weren't thinking, they didn't teach ethics anymore. They didn't teach consequential thinking. They didn't think beyond now and the impact on society and humanity. So some of the programs have increased, but I would dare say that some of them have been now a bit um, corrupted by specific people, again, with knowledge, trying to 
shape the meaning of, as Marley say, language, even down to words, shaping whole generations by changing the meaning of words. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, this morning session, someone raised the whole thing about Cambridge Analytica and what they were doing in terms of changing people's perceptions of voting and behaviour and things like that through algorithms and and the ability to be able to manipulate people within those systems has increased significantly. Whilst politicians were always doing it through rhetoric, at least it was on an individual basis and there was a it was remote. Now what it's doing is kind of surrounding us and it's in everything and quite a lot of these programmes are automatic uh, and quite often people don't know what's going on inside them. Um, yeah. And just briefly on that point, because part of the conversation with Marley's was we we're speaking about... Um, all the way back to the founders and framers of the U.S. Constitution. But through their knowledge, they were able to construct and develop a document that was so durable that even hundreds of years later, the country is still being run off it. But in that same sense, if people are doing the same thing now and they're kind of saying, well, let's make this in our own image kind of thing, and they're building that in and Cambridge Analytics changing, that was the reason that even back then they recognized that pure democracy couldn't work because it was too open to manipulation like that, which is why they have the electoral college system in the United States. So it's just almost profound how even way back then, human behavior is just so predictable. Yes, yes, yeah, exactly. Brilliant, yeah, nice. Okay, so I'm gonna show the same questions, but move forward, we're not going to answer them just because of time. So, and it's uh, uh, when I send the slides out, these are worth thinking about, about next year, answering exactly the same questions about 2024, which is days away, and then thinking about 2040 and where this is likely to be leading to, what kinds of issues we're going to be solving, and also how knowledge is going to be used and perceived as well. But we'll we'll come back to that. So um, looking across the, the, the research, what one of the things that kind of came out of there, the kinds of levers of change within the knowledge economy itself, and these four considered to be four kind of levers of change, which are the technological advancements, things like AI. If you go back to the 60s, you know, kind of computers and things, all of those kinds of things were starting. Dynamics within the workforce, how people are working, what kinds of things are happening with those. And that includes things that have happened since COVID, for example, working from home, much more on those kinds of things. The evolving nature of knowledge management and what it's trying to do. And as you'll see in a minute, that that is being significantly impacted by some of the more recent technologies and what people's idea of knowledge management and what is now knowledge that can be processed is completely different to the knowledge that could be processed in the 60s and 70s and 80s, which we'll, we'll have a look at. And then things like social change and, and trends as well. So these four things together are having a, a massive impact on the knowledge economy. So a couple of weeks ago, there was a paper produced starting to have a look at how the, the knowledge economy is changing. And it, it came up with a number of things that were, were going on. And these were those. Firstly, that there's an increase in economic and knowledge uncertainty, like what knowledge is, what's factual knowledge, especially with 
like the internet, you know, what what are you reading? Is this, you know, what are you watching? Is it factual? How do you know? How are you going to validate it? It gets harder and harder. That the pace of change in the workplace is really picking up, particularly with things like AI. That there are shifting dynamics going on between employees and employers. And the one of the things is a couple of studies. In fact, we've sent out a couple of research briefings around this is showing that things like working from home, hierarchical management styles do not work very well with that kind of knowledge work, that it needs to be much more participative and a flatter level of management rather than an overseeing level of management because you can't see what's going on. That there's an increasing need for niche talent and that what were considered to be kind of core knowledge workers now are being laid off because things like AI are replacing that. And so, and and this is also creating this need for niche workers around things like, um, like prompt engineering. Like two years ago, who'd heard of prompt engineer? And a prompt engineer, they're now some of the most highly paid people on the planet, you know, good ones anyway. Um, there was a, a I can't remember which company it was. And there was a prompt engineer. It was it was almost a million pounds a year, whoever was going to get the job. 900,000 for a prompt engineer for this particular thing. That there's a move towards cultures of agility, flexibility, and responsiveness within organisations. And we'll, we'll look at that in, in a moment. The employee expectations are shifting rapidly about what they're willing to put up with, not willing to put up with, whether they'll prepare to move. And what's happening is because of this need for um, niche talent is that the globalization of, of recruitment and talent management is that actually we don't need the talent here. It doesn't need to be in the same building, doesn't need to be in the same country. We can start bringing people in for, and teams can configure, reconfigure and go away again and never having met in person. And as a result of that, there are a whole series of kind of expectations that people are change, uh, expecting in terms of their relationship with the, the organisation, their relationship with managers and leaders as well. This idea, which we've just touched on, that talent is now global and can be called up at a moment and dismissed in a moment as well. There are, as a result of that, there are a lot of diversity issues. How do we get people from different countries, different time zones, but different languages and things actually communicating in a way? And a lot of the work that we've been doing on DEI have been asking questions around what does too little diversity look like in an organization? What does too much diversity look like? And, and that's an interesting question. So usually when you start to have a look at across that research, you've got kind of an inverted U shape where too little diversity, we're talking about groupthink, there's not enough creativity going on. And the, depending on the customer base, what you tend to do is you tend to have a kind of a narrower view of what the customer base is and they tend to go after a smaller customer base whereas in more diverse organizations there's this ability to go after and understand a, a wider wider customer base or serve a wider customer base and then at the other end if you've got too much diversity people 
find it difficult to understand each other, communicate, and and to understand what's going on. And communication becomes difficult. So there's this kind of sweet spot in the middle of of increased diversity and how do you manage that and how do you manage that in this in in, in a changing um environment that the whole f- idea of knowledge management is changing and one of the things and we'll we'll talk about this in a second one of the things is what is considered to be knowledge what was considered to be knowledge usually it's what we refer to as um a kind of tacit knowledge the stuff that you can write down and is easily passed on well now with the kinds of analytics that we've got we can analyze people's gestures behaviors on mass so the kinds of things that we previously considered was too difficult in terms of being useful knowledge now isn't so the nature of knowledge our understanding of knowledge is changing significantly this whole idea about reconfiguring knowledge and knowledge management so there's there's a quite a rapid change going on in that area and this idea about customized knowledge maps and I'll, i'm going to send a thing out about about those um in a in a, in a short while we've got um, a couple of research briefings that are looking at how um how knowledge management systems are shifting towards more proactive forms of knowledge because of these knowledge maps. What they can do is they can say, right, okay, these are the things that are happening. These are the things that you need to do now. So it's proactive. It's actually giving advice and that it's predictive. It can say these are the things that are likely to happen next. And that's a wholly different idea between the systems being able to provide that. That all forms of data are now knowledge assets, things that we hadn't thought of before, this idea of proactive systems and advanced analytics, and then customized systems, products and services. So highly detailed customization for the client where it fits in exactly what they want. So a lot of the services and and knowledge services are enabling that to be. And these are the main shifts that they're seeing within the knowledge economy. And that there are largely, there's a whole load of technologies that are involved in that. But there are 10, there are considered to be 10 top um, knowledge trends that are going on or or drivers of, of this change. And these are those. Obviously, AI generated knowledge is one of the highest because of the impact that it's having. Digital systems competencies. So the, the, the digital systems themselves are becoming more and more competent to being able to do things and organizations are becoming more and more competent at using them and wielding them. That blockchain um, knowledge management is in, is advancing rapidly and leading to all sorts of um, advances in terms of business, business models uh, and, and products as well. This whole idea about open innovation, looking around, the not invented here stuff actually moving out of that and saying right okay we need to connect more with research we need to connect more with what's going on in the universities we need to connect more with what's happening in other sectors and other industries and see if there's anything there that we can bring in as well and quite a lot of there's a, a number of recent 
machine learning and AI systems that are doing the environmental scanning now and bringing the information into the organization based on this. The whole idea of cloud technology, which allows distributed knowledge really quickly. As I said, cybersecurity is becoming a big issue because organizations are suddenly realizing that some of the documents that they thought were just theirs and some of the knowledge that they thought was just theirs is actually suddenly available to the entire world. And there's a question that's coming in to organizations that's really hit organizations since last November, uh, a year last November, is how do we protect our knowledge, especially when we've got systems that are connected. Um, the whole idea about knowledge analytics, which we've looked at and then being predictive, um, use of robotics, quantum computing, I've got a handout that I'll send out about what all of these mean and what the impacts of them are within the, the knowledge economy. And then this whole idea about knowledge networks, 5G knowledge networks, that large amounts of data and knowledge can be stored and transmitted really quickly. So enabling faster processing with more data and that that's having a big impact, particularly when it's connected to things like cloud computing and things like that. And these, these 10, and there are other ones, these 10 are considered to be the ones that are actually driving the biggest shift at the moment in terms of how the knowledge economies change or knowledge economies are changing. And one of the things that's come out of this is also the idea of democratization of knowledge and knowledge economies in as much as a lot of nations that were being kept out of this now have the technology, you can't keep them out. There is going to be a shift in a lot of countries that were not considered to be knowledge economies. They are now starting to become that news. Um, one of our members this morning who's from India, he's actually involved in all of this and he says there's a big shift happening within their their work, what's going on within the country. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, yeah, stuff going on in that, that area. So I just want to have a quick look um, before we open this out into what organisations are doing to stay ahead in this shift that's going on within the non, uh, knowledge economies. Uh, basically, it's based, what they're doing is based on two sets of capabilities, what are known as relational capabilities and dynamic. These are strategic capabilities for organisations. I'll just quickly explain what they are. Relational are really the ability of the organisation to be able to effectively manage and cultivate relationships with network members, people that they're connected to, and strategic partners particularly, and that they're focusing on building those relationships for, um, for mutual a benefit and dynamic relation, uh, dynamic capabilities, which is around the focusing on creating a more adaptable, flexible organization um, so that they can adapt to changing environments by modifying and reconfiguring existing resources and capabilities. And that includes people. So people who can learn fast, people who can pivot and move quite fast and that they can Almost, so some of the organizations now are trying to modularize what they're doing in the organization so that the, the, the speed of reconfiguration gets faster. And there's seven findings from these studies about 
what organizations are doing and what advice they would give to organizations. So the first one is focusing on developing dynamic capabilities, and that's through strengthening relationships with network members and strategic partners. That's part of the open, open innovation stuff. Focusing on strategic relationships. And what they discovered is that relationships with strategic partners have, have a more significant impact on dynamic capability development than customer relationships. So it doesn't mean that customer relationships aren't important. It's just that if you're developing a more flexible organization, it's the strategic network that will help you get there faster rather than the information that you're getting from customers. That's of a different nature of um, uh, information. That reducing centralized and formalized organization structure is a good idea, that these types of structures, the traditional structures, tend to hold back dynamic capabilities. And also they tend to hold back relationship building within networks. So they're saying decentralization and flexibility tend to enhance knowledge exchange and creativity that foster more dynamic capability development, which is a challenge for a lot of organizations. And there's a research briefing, I think, on the way out tomorrow, um, looking at what they call the organizing paradox, which is this paradox between organizations having a hierarchy and uh, like a, a way of working that's kind of top down, whilst at the same time having to trying to be flexible and trying to be able to kind of um, uh, adapt to changes as they're happening within the market. And those two things have, are, are in a paradoxical relationship quite often. The aligning... Um, and integrating customer relationship management with strategic and uh, operational units to align customer insights with strategy development so that the two are closer together. And what they found was quite often strategy and strategic development within organizations is not informed by what the customers see. They're too far apart and they're saying you need to integrate them. They need to be close together and not just close together in terms of information, but in time so that you're using real time analytics rather than historical analytics. It's too slow. Um, developing a learning orientation. And it's how do we do that across the organization? So the organization's learning and the people inside are learners. And it's this that's one of the keys to dynamic capability development because the managers need to be here, the employees need to be here, the organization needs to be here. And then lastly, actually focusing on investing in this idea of dynamic capability, having it as a focus so that because it's that that makes the relational capability turn into performance. And... That's the seven. Did I skip one there? No, I didn't. Um, I'm going to stop now. And any questions, comments, or thoughts about any of that? Yeah, Marcellus. I, um, I had an observation. Oh, Marcellus, go. No, go ahead, Jonathan. Oh. Uh, just on the sixth one, the, the learning orientation, because a lot of the work we're focused on now is looking at learning emotions. 
So there's a whole way in which, you know, cognitive development and all these things are inclusive of and dependent on emotions. And people have a lot of different emotional affected associations with learning in different ways. And how that plays a role in developing a learning orientation would be quite interesting. Yeah, so there is quite a bit of work around learning orientation and, and emotions already. And there's stuff around. I saw something this morning, actually, about the four E's. Um, just hold on a second. Because I, because I was thinking about this. Um, I mean, while you're looking, Marcellius, yeah. what are you going to yeah, say? Yeah, yeah, go for it. I was just really around the fact of the flexibility of the organizations because I spent part of my career working in the um, media, television, and movies. And the nature of those organizations is that they call it a project. The movie is a project. And they are already mentally oriented to the fact that this is my project, this is my team, this is my hierarchy right now, and are able to be released back into the free space or even into their organizations until the next project comes along. That shift, kind of going back to the points of structure and organization, hierarchy and shifting relationship, is something that I think um, I was just putting in the chat that this information to me is powerful and gives value to some of the conversations I can have with leaders, but it almost feels like they're not going to listen to me. Them sitting and listening to this conversation would make them go, holy cow, we've got it. I mean, for everything, we've got it all wrong right now. If we want to be that organization for the future, there are fundamental things, changes that we need to make. We, and most of the time, they won't do it individually because I tend to have the ear of one person. But that against all those other organizational operation priorities, it falls by the wayside. And that to a degree is a challenge of, for me is how do I, and I'm collectively trying to work with other change managers now, how do we educate leaders so that they can keep the door open to allow us the time to be able to help them understand what work needs to be done? But it's just that, it's just like, so David, I love this. You know I do. And every organization I go, I recommend to all the change managers, you know, Oxford Review. But it just feels a bit like I feel like Chicken Little, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yes, yeah, I, I know. It's kind of, it, and it kind of comes back to some of the things that we were talking about, about wisdom, about thinking, Kriegel thinking, and developing those kinds of things in people so that they're, A, curious, and the learning orientation that Jonathan was talking about. Yeah, there's this whole thing, the four E's, the thing that I was talking about, okay. Um, you may have seen this, you may not have seen it. So it, it, it it's really about the types of cognitive development, I suppose, that we we kind of go through and I don't get into all of the theory, but the, in terms of um, embodied cognitions, embedded cognitions. So embedded cognitions means the kinds of knowledge and thinking that are embedded in artifacts and things outside. So, you know, you, you just look at a, a mug and you think, well, it's just a mug, but actually there's a concept here about storing stuff and, like drinking stuff and you want something with a handle because you don't want... So there's a whole series of embedded cognitions within 
just a simple artifact like that. Extended cognition, so things like AI, um, just having Obsidian or something enables, you know, it's the stuff that you can outsource to somewhere else or store things, and then enacted cognitions, enacted knowledge, how how we actually use this stuff. And, and the emotions are part of this process. We can't, and it... it it interests me the way people talk about cognitions as if they're separate from the emotions. They're actually part of the same system, which is a human being. And and quite often that gets forgotten, you know, we, especially in organisations, you get this sense that they're trying to strip emotion out of the organisation, which is total folly, because what kinds of decisions are you going to be making? We already know that most of our decisions virtually with the exception of the automated ones, arise in the arise in the, the more um, affective areas of the brain first, and that the gap between that and the cognitive parts catching up with it is, like in nanoseconds terms, massive. It, and we think at the moment that what's going on is that the decision will arise and that the brain is then trying to rationalise the decision. We just justify it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, this idea of stripping out the emotions is nonsense. It's actually you're making decisions through those emotions. You can't get away from it. It is part of our system. And and so I think these things about separating them out is interesting for research purposes and thinking about it, but it's not the system. And I think that's that's really important what Jonathan's saying. Cool. Any other comments, thoughts about the knowledge economy change and stuff like that? Yeah, Marlies. Yeah, I mean, just maybe building on your point, David, is how much more time does it take to to embrace the emotions versus all of the fast-paced sort of um, analytics and things like that? And that's that's that for me is is a, is the biggest challenge that we face is is the time. Um, to do the things that are important rather than just pure productivity. So, yeah, yeah. But, and then comes the question is, how do you have one without the other anyway? So, you know, what, and usually, you know, the problems that are caused within organizations are usually through those things. It's the emotions and people's reactions to those emotions and reactions to their own emotions quite often. Yeah. Uh, and because they don't understand them, they tend to maladaptive. I think the word is <laughs> reactions to those. Yeah. Any other thoughts, comments? Yeah, Paul. I was just thinking, just hearing this conversation, it makes me wonder if actually what we're going to go through is some kind of generational change, because because the shift we've just talked about, I think for most people, is just too big it's too scary it's too loss of power and control on what they know and and therefore you know we're going to see a whole generation hang on to the world that was and then it's going to flip really quickly as another generation who just grew up with this stuff mm. flipping and and you know i was always sort of conscious when i sit on one of these calls to remember that you know we're not normal the fact that we're on this call you know in between christmas and New year talking about this <laughs> issue puts us in the minority not the majority of the kind of people that you <laughs> In the nicest possible way, obviously, but but we're not, you know, we're not representative of the 
the majority of people in industry and businesses and organizations who not only find all this stuff scary and terrifying, but actually would do anything to just go back to what they know and continue doing what they already do. Yeah. And I, well, I, I find that just fascinating, the juxtaposition between those two things. Yeah. We don't want it yeah. and it's coming anyway. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I'll just one second, Marcel, is what, I, there was a thing that I saw the other day about the number of uh, generations that are in the work workforce at the moment uh, is the highest that ever has been, yeah, largely because what pounds is it? Six or seven, I think. If you go back to the oh, boomers, wow. which is my, I'm right at the end of the boomers. So, yeah, six or seven, I think I saw. And because what other, what are now classed as the generations are shorter in periods of time because oh. the shifts in technology have been so, it's had such an impact. And the other so, one that I thought was really fascinating, because I've seen some stuff on that recently, was the fact that now your average first line early entry manager doesn't know what it was like to not have the internet. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Marcellus. Which again is another fund fundamental shift. It was I know. Yeah, it was just building on that and the fact that that if we look at so there's an interesting book, I'll put the link in the chat called The Fourth Turning. Are you guys familiar with that book? It's talking about the generational and the mind shifts and how the different generations working together and how the chat I'll put a link in the chat. But the tendency in human history is that these people who forget those things, they forget some of the, you know, the history, they tend to want to throw everything out because they feel that they're smarter than all of the ancestors. And so certain generations that hung on to, this is the knowledge of the ancestors, this is the uh, knowledge of the aged, and how can we apply it now? Again, kind of going back to my thing, because I've been reading recently on the Founding Fathers in the US, they built it in with the knowledge of history, with the new perspective of their generation. Whereas this generation, even my own son, it's like, you guys don't know. I'm like, son, you have no idea, which makes this whole thing of people who control the knowledge telling them the meanings of words. It puts the power in those, those hands because now they're a massive generation that feel that they're going to be in control. One last point. I've, I heard somebody say recently, but what they have to recognize is that if this generation, those boomers and those previous generations are the ones with the money, as smart as those kids are, if we are still being driven by capitalism, those older generations will still hold the power because they're the ones who will have the money to pay for the services. So as much as you are, and if you be eight, the old person's going, sorry, I want to read it in a book, darling. You know what I mean? Oh, how do we print a book? I, what is this book you speak of? Or as my, um, somebody said recently, um, the A to Z, oh, look, somebody printed Google Maps. <laughs> Love it. That's fantastic. <laughs> I've just put in, there's a couple of links there in Amazon. There's an interesting book that's just, or two books actually, that's just been published by John Viveki. Jonathan will know, yeah. Um, who's really a kind of a, would I be right in saying a wisdom researcher, thinker? Anyway. Yeah, go he on. has an office across from Jordan Peterson, has known him a long time. A good friend of mine did one of these uh, video witnessing thing with him recently in the south of France. All right. Yeah. yeah. So he's just published two books in August called Mentoring the Machine, which is really thinking through some of this stuff. They're, they're very good, but I'm just working through them at the moment. Um, so, yeah, and they're worth, they're worth looking at. Uh, and he's a very good writer. 
and and thinker as well. There's one or two things in there that I question, but apart from that, it's uh, and certainly does a lot around wisdom and thinking about wisdom and systems and things. Yeah, I put a link in. That's part one of the interview my friend did with him. Oh, beautiful. Thanks, Jonathan. Later. Um, oh, yeah. Oh. That's great. Thanks. Brilliant. That's the top of the hour. Hope that's been interesting and useful and kind of got the grey matter going a little bit over, over the holidays. <laughs> it, but it is interesting, this shift in the knowledge economy and, and the impact that it's having on organisations um, and workers and people's thinking and how that thinking shifting. And it'd be an interesting, actually, research project to, to start thinking through all those shifts in terms what I was talking to somebody who's doing a PhD in wisdom at the moment about how starting to think about how our perception of wisdom may have changed over those years as well, because of some of this, but that's a, that's a different thought for another day. Um, so all I've got to say is thank you for 2023 and um, happy new year. Happy New Year, everyone. Yeah, yeah thanks, David. Happy New Year. David, Happy Thank you. Year. And I'll Thank see you, you in 2024. Thank see you. you see you in a year's time. <laughs> <laughs> see you next year, yeah. Yeah, see you next year. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye.